Randall Stevens is an icon in the Lexington entrepreneurship space from Archivision to Base 110 and now at Avail. In this episode, Evan sits down with his boss and he talks about his whole history and his unique perspective on the Lexington scene. It is a cannot miss conversation. Let's go. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. Nate Antitomaso up here in Chicago. Down in Lexington, Kentucky, we have Evan Knowles. And Evan, this is a special guest for you today. It is. We are in Base 110. We are actually with one of the owners of Base 110 and uh, the founder of the company I'm now working for, Avail. So Randall Stevens. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Randall on with us. So uh, we're going to kind of walk through his background, what Mm -hmm. he's doing now. Uh, base 110 and kind of his outlook on entrepreneurship in the city of Lexington. So glad to have you on, man. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Yeah, it's a. Can you hear? There's now a baby screaming outside of my apartment. So I say we just leave that yeah. in. That that adds to the the character here. So you guys are in a much better space, though. You're at Base 110. You're in the new media studio. Yeah. So they've got an awesome media studio here. They're continuing to build out. Uh, you know, they obviously attract a lot of entrepreneurs and freelancers and when it comes to you know startups and entrepreneurship and freelancing you obviously need to have a lot of great spaces for media and to create content so part of base 110 is dedicated to that and that's where we're at now uh let's go ahead and jump into randall your your background uh, let's do kind of just give us the high level overview of where you're from college just give us the the background in your personal life great um, Kentucky native, grew up in Pikeville, Kentucky, in eastern Kentucky. Uh, came to Lexington to go to the University of Kentucky 1985. Started mm-hmm. in the electrical engineering program. I always have to tell people, it's like I never wanted to be an electrical engineer, but I was interested in computers. And 1985, if you were interested in computers, there was no such thing as a computer science department. So they basically funneled you into the electrical engineering department. and. Um, Lasted about three semesters in EE and uh, switched to an architecture uh, program there and uh, ended up graduating with a degree from UK in architecture. And I've been in Lexington ever since. Started a company called ArcVision right out of school in 1991. And I've been in the architecture, engineering, construction market, what we call the AEC market, my whole career. So going on, has it been 30 years? Going on 30 years, 28 years or something, right? Yeah, I know that because that's part of our pitch with Avail is your experience. So what made you want to go from computer or electrical engineering to architecture? Um, you know, so, so growing up, I was I always thought I wanted to be an architect. And, you know, I think somewhere along the way, somebody talked me out of it or gave advice that that probably wasn't a great career choice, and um, which was probably bad advice, but yeah. uh, <laughs> advice nonetheless. Uh but, you know, I always, I always, I kind of believe in this, um, you're, I'm a victim of when I was born. So I was born at the right time, you know, to be like completely enthralled when I was in, you know, junior high school, teen, young teenager, and, you know, the personal computer was just coming out. So I was, you know, geeked out on all things about the computer, self-taught, right? I was lucky that my parents, you know, bought some of the earliest you know, personal computers that you could have. So I had access to that kind of stuff. So then, uh, you know, when I went, just was going to go to school, right, I was tending more towards the computer side of things and thus getting shuttled into that electrical engineering program. Um, But also was just interested in design and, you know, kind of spent my whole early life, you know, drawing and dreaming about houses and floor plans and, you know, just kind of all the, uh, just very spatial, you know, in hindsight, very spatially minded. And, uh, you know, that so everything that I did was so I found my home when I finally got into the architecture school. And then I really found my home when I discovered 3D computer graphics as part of that and uh, ended up combining really my interest and love of computing and all the things about the computer uh, with, you know, the design world. So, yeah. 
Talk about, you know, your first experience with the computer. You said your parents had gotten, you know, kind of early into that space. You were lucky enough to have access to that. Um, talk about, you know, that experience early on and then how that morphed into 3D graphics and uh, what, what kind of equipment you were dealing with then. Mm. So, I mean, having the, you know, I mean, it started with an Atari, right, game system, right? So you're, you, uh, if you were around in that age, right? That was the first kind of piece of electronics that you probably got that kind of wowed everybody. And then I had, you know, Commodore 64, Texas Instrument Computer, early piece, you know, early computers that ran basic. And so I learned, taught myself how to program in basic and wrote software, right? Earliest software. Um, and then, uh, you know, by the time I got to college, right? Had enough of that under my belt that by the time I got into the architecture program and kind of discovered, you know, this was mid late eighties and computer graphics were just becoming a thing and a company called Autodesk that we actually I do a lot of work with today, uh, you know, was the early CAD software company and it was that software that, you know, I really became enthralled with. And so I was spent most of my waking hours and extra time, if there was such uh, while I was in school kind of in the computer lab in the architecture school, teaching myself how to use those tools, you know, building building my designs in 3D and doing animation and graphics work. And then ultimately when I started ArcVision in 91, right out of school, it was a, really it was a services company doing high-end, you know, computer graphics work. So I was, you know, there was no better time to be alive if you were interested in computer graphics in the late 80s, early 90s. It was the, you know, yeah. it was just like crazy, right? Excitement, a lot of, a lot of new technologies coming online and um so it was fun i spent most of my 90s then kind of it's tinkering doing that yeah yeah doing, doing computer graphics work so makes sense and then how did that morph into you know arc vision you know you always that i think that story is really interesting how you took that from you know that service model just helping people through your interest of love for computers and graphics and then that ultimately became pretty good sized business Yes, we grew, ArcVision was a services company. We were basically trying to find people, you know, begging people to let us build build their designs in 3D and, you know, produce, you know, graphics and animation. So it was a services business. You know, we had, I can't remember our peak, we probably had 15, 16 people maybe working at the company. Uh, so I, you know, the first two or three years I was, you know, I was doing about 100 hours a week of production. And then uh, at some point I, you know, was able to, back off me being the production person. But, you know, I learned a lot of um, the the equipment and the software was so expensive then that you were always trying to optimize the workflow about where which equipment you were using to do certain things on because it was really expensive, like tens yeah. of thousands of dollars to buy some of this equipment. So, you know, I was always looking at, from the business standpoint, how do we do what can we do on these cheap computers that's labor intensive versus these really expensive computers that are compute intensive, you know, not labor intensive and try to divide that. So that really led to me getting into the software business because I basically began developing software that was, you know, kind of connecting these things. And then ultimately what became the business that ArcVision to this day is in for the last 20 years software wise, I kind of came up with the what became that software in 1995 and really sat on it for a couple of years and then had a change in the business and who I was in business with and uh, basically 1998 um, got into the software side of the business. So started writing tools that were used by other people to do kind of high-end graphics work and stuff. Yeah. Interesting. So whether people know it or not, you probably maybe have seen some of ArcVision's graphics. I know UK, whenever you see a rendering of an architectural project, a lot of times you'll see some of your software and your licensed pretty, content. Pretty good chance if yeah. you see renderings that it, some of our stuff might have been. It's a, it's a content technology um, and it's pretty pervasive. I know um, I was in Korea one time in a cab from the airport to Seoul and I saw a billboard and recognized some of our content <laughs> in it, right? So it's like, yeah, it's all right, cool. it's all over the place. Yeah. And so what exactly is it? Talk about what, what you, what you're selling. Um, so our, so what we did was we developed a way to represent really complex things 
in computer graphics. So now you have to go all the way back to in the 90s. You know, computing resources were very scarce. So I came up with a technique, I'll say, that was what we call an image-based rendering that was using and kind of tricking tricking the scene and the computer graphics scene using image-based data instead of polygonal or models, right, complex things. So where it ended up applying best was anything that's organic, right, which is really difficult to represent and make look real. I figured out a way to make people, put people in these animations and trees and foliage and all the really complex stuff that makes this imagery come alive. So it was a combination of kind of underlying technology, software technology, and then there was a content component to it. And, you know, we've we've had thousands and thousands of customers, you know, I think we have customers in more than 100 countries around the world that use that. So it, it became pervasive, you know, it's still, a, it was a niche business, but, yeah. you know, anybody that was doing that kind of work probably knew, knew about yeah. us. So. Yeah, it's it's been fascinating to kind of track that that business. So ArcVision is a sister company to Avail. Avail spun out of of ArcVision, and so it's the new baby. Uh, yeah, it's the new baby. So I, I touch it kind of on a regular basis, and it's just interesting to see that kind of technology and understand where that's kind of heading. So let's kind of talk about where it's heading. You know, that's 3D renderings, and with virtual reality and augmented reality, do you see a place for that in those up and coming technologies? Definitely, and you know, I've uh... So we're going to get into the new company called Avail, which I, you know, kind of incubated inside of ArcVision, and then we spun it out into a separate company. And then I've been, you know, uh, you know, a guy named Corey Rubidoux, who is now the CEO of ArcVision. He and I have known each other in the industry for years, and he was coming off an, a, a, another gig and and became available. So he joined the team, and now he's running ArcVision, and he's really, you know, taking you know, what's 20 year old technology and giving it a new boost, right? So it's kind of, it's actually been a ton of fun. Uh, Corey knew about the business for all these years and we uh, we spent a lot of time talking and, and shared a lot of the mind share about where the industry was going and, you know, what, what you should be, what we should be doing. Um, but, you know, to have technology that's been around for 20 years, it's kind of crazy. It's like one of those things where I'm like, wow, I can't believe it. You feel it's like it's going to get a whole new life with well, VR? Well, it is. And, oh, I think yeah. it's completely. So it's Corey's gonna, yeah. Corey's like, you know, setting the stage now for the next 20 years of this, right? So and really propelling it beyond anything that, that we had done before with it. So that's all just very exciting. Um, yeah, there's, uh, in the end, we're still solving some of the graphic content problem and it's a little bit different slant on how, what the problem is. And a lot of it is, is, standardization and, and being able to to have content that can completely play across different platforms and yeah ultimately try to make it simple for the end users as simple as it can be yeah because vr you know with ArcVision now it's very focused on the architecture engineering niche and that industry both vr when that reaches where people say it's going to reach which mass market it's no longer just architects doing the design work and using these these renderings um, it becomes any designer could possibly be using. Yeah, the I think you're. You know, it, I watched it. You know, unfold over the last twenty some years of that. You know, we we talk about it as the democratization of whatever this technology is inside of like even these design firms. So it's gone from. I always jokingly say it was like you know, one person in the corner that used our stuff that was the expert that you know did all this kind of work inside of a firm. Well, over the last 20 years, that's changed. So it's almost everybody at everybody in the firm that's doing any kind of design work is probably doing some form of wow. visualization. So it was all about simplifying it, democratizing it. And now you're seeing it even beyond professional designers to, you know, people can can design their own home on yeah. their iPhone yeah. and drop Ikea furniture in yeah. AR, right? Yeah. And, and look at it inside of a scene. So, you know, to me, that's just the continual democratization of, you know, yeah. but it has to be easy, right? Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I learned the really hard stuff, so I'm trying to make it where you shouldn't have to learn all of that to be yeah. able to do this kind of work. So, yeah, and so talk about how through that experience of building that content out and selling that content, you realized, well, there's a whole another issue here, and that was a veil. That's what a veil spun out of, and you're solving that problem. So, talk about the moment you realized that, and uh, kind of how a veil popped out of that. 
Uh, you know, in hindsight, I always like to think that they were moments that happened. Actually, the uh, the original Arc Vision stuff was a moment. I remember I was sitting at dinner one night, and it was a bunch of stuff in my head that kind of clicked all at one moment. And I was like, ah, it kind of came together. And I literally went into the, it was all kind of Friday night. I went into the office on Saturday and actually wrote the code and proved that this theory was going to work. And I was like so excited yeah, <laughs> like yeah. everybody came into the office on monday and i'm like showing them this <laughs> stuff and nobody got it right it was one of those things like do you understand what this what, See, what i didn't this i didn't is? know you had written that first code I didn't yeah, know, yeah. I didn't so uh but uh you know the fast forward now to what we're doing with avail it's uh it's a content management platform and we're really trying to solve some really big you know content management problems uh, not only in this industry, it's actually applicable kind of to everybody who's trying to manage any kind of files and data. Uh, but, you know, when you're when we were in the when ArcVision was in the content business and almost anybody that's developing software ends up developing some form of content management of their own. So ArcVision had its own content management platform. So at some point we were already building out some tools to manage content for our end users. What what struck me, though, was you know, one, why are we spending all of this engineering time just for our own little, you know, for our own niche part of the business to build out this software and yet, and then every other software company is doing the same thing. And if you're the end user, you're having to use, you know, 50 different content management platforms. So what we, what we've done with Avail, uh, you know, and we have a lot, of, we had a lot of great customers in the industry. So I was able to get a a really head start in talking to customers about how they were managing content, what those problems were. So before we ever wrote a line of code, I was having lots of conversations with uh, people in the industry about what they were doing and doing that kind of research. So I think the, um, you know, what we're trying to do now is say, it's why should everybody be building yet another content management system? Why can't there be a more common way to manage the content? And then ultimately we can have software partners leveraging what we're doing with Avail. But for the, uh, you know, the one thing that I always say about what we're doing at Avail, at Avail is we're always trying to solve the problem from the end user that's got the problem at their desk every day back out. So it's like, what are they facing every day? Part of that is they're using a lot of different software. And if every one of them has a different approach to managing info and data, they have to learn a different platform, right? They don't use it very often, it's intermittent use. They forget how to use it. It's just very frustrating and all those types of things. So we're really yeah. trying to tackle that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I first, you know, ran into you at an event here, actually at Base 110, you kind of described it to me and pretty quickly um, I realized it kind of just clicked. I understood the issue, made sure I stayed in contact and dug in more. And then the more I learned, I'm just like, wow, this is a big solution. This is solving a big problem. And in turn, it's a big, a big software solution. Um and I was able to re re relate to the, the problem of finding content quickly because uh, I wasn't necessarily an architect, which is our current client base, but just at, at Fuji dealing with sending assets to companies I'm, I'm working with or look, searching for case studies. You know, my, I might have a case study on my computer, and if a client were to ask me for a case study that had certain attributes, I would have to look through all of my case studies and I might not remember all those case studies. And so if I had a way to tag those with certain attributes and just type those in and, and find that, I was able to connect that to what you had told me. Um, and then I was able to extrapolate that, that out to everything. Um, and so at its core, you know, I, I, I pitched this, this product now. And so <laughs> at its core, it's solving, you know, two, two major things. The first one is, like I said, arriving into content very quickly. Um, right now, content management platforms, they're folder-based. And so when you think about a large company, you know, everybody deals with this problem themselves. But when you extrapolate it out to a large company, and they have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of assets and, and files within the company, the only way you get to a piece of content now is if you remember the name of it or you remember where in the folder structure you kept it. And so you have to navigate through all these folders. And at scale, that doesn't work. It takes too long to find things. And so with Avail, we're not holding content in folders. We're not even holding the content. We're indexing the content wherever that content lives. And so once you index that content, you attach metadata to it. And so, for instance, if you have vacation photos, you might tag certain photos with the word beach because you took that photo on the beach. And you might tag it with who is in the photo. And then next time you want to arrive to that photo, 
you just type in those attributes and everything else that doesn't have to do with those attributes can be dropped out. And so as you can see, you know, getting to that content quickly the next time is that easy. It's, you know, very contextual and arriving to it in a way that makes sense versus folders. And then the other problem is, and this was the one that I think stuck out to me most, is people have content in all kinds of different locations. They might have it locally on their computer. They might have it in Dropbox or Google Drive or Box. You know, they have all these different solutions that store the content, but there's never been a way to search across all of them simultaneously um, and, and a way to index all that content. That's what Avail has done is they've built a software layer on top of storage to index down into it and reach and point to the content you need in the moment. Um, so it's really a search product, I guess, at its core. Uh, so it's pretty exciting. It's an awesome technology, and right now uh, it's focused on the architecture space. Um, that's a huge market, and so big, problem. Uh, big, big problem there because you can imagine, you know, you. T- I call it the. Yeah. I, I call the problem the loose, the loose file problem. So it's basically every piece of software that you produce something in data, whether it's you know Microsoft Word document or a PowerPoint document or a Adobe Photoshop file you end up saving that file somewhere. So I always think about the, I'm always trying to think like, well, how big is this problem? So where I kind of get to the, the, the way at the core of it to describe how big the problem is, is that every application that you go file open, it requires you to figure out where to go find a file and open it up and do something to it. And then every time you edit something or create a piece of content in whatever application you're in, uh, you there's a file save and you have to figure out where to go put it. Well, that, you know, imagine that going on all over the world, not just in this market, but every market. It's no wonder that nobody can find anything, right? Yeah. So it's not structured data in any way. So I always think that, you know, that that to me is like getting down to like, okay, how big is the problem? Yeah. Well, here's why it's messed up. And here's how big the scale of that problem is. So uh, yeah. we're trying to, um, you know, and then when you dig into all that, it's really about because the way the underlying file system works is what we would refer to as a location-based. So a file can only live in one place at one time. But I used to, when we were first uh, pitching this to our customer base, I would always rhetorically ask, you know, how many times have you ever saved a file somewhere in one of those folder systems? And then you come back six months later and you can't find it. Or you're like, why the hell did I put it there? Well, it's because context changes. It probably made perfect sense. You wouldn't have put it there if it didn't make yeah. sense yeah. in some, in some, you know, in one way or another. But then when you come back looking for it, it's like, well, why did I put it there and not over there? That's all about context. So information, the way you think about getting to information is, is you know, different at different times. So that means location-based storage is not a very good answer to being able to get to things in multiple ways. So we sit a layer above that kind of file system and start to free up yeah. the way you can think about getting to content. So To really simplify it, you could say we're almost building a Google-like search engine for, an in, for a company's internal content. Is yeah, that fair? You could say it's a vertical search engine, yeah, right? If you're pitching a VC, you'd say, <laughs> it's, you know, 10 years ago, nobody wanted to invest in vertical search engines, but now they're in vogue again. So it's yeah. like... <laughs> well, I mean, the whole thing is we need to structure data. Data yes. needs to be structured because that's ultimately what leads to voice being able to exist and in these search search products that are starting to pop up they don't exist without structured data and ultimately that's what we're doing with content yeah um just to just to give another in this market every time i go visit customers one of the things i always ask them to do is go to the last go to the folder which they always store all their project data in folders go to the last project that you worked on and right click on it and go to the properties and I want to see how many files there are and how many folders are in that directory structure. And it's not uncommon for there to be on a single project between 50 and 150,000 files in hundreds, sometimes low thousands of numbers of folders just for one project. So yeah. it's a yeah, it's a huge problem. So what stage of the company would you say it's in? Where where is Avail right now in, in stages of a company? Describe that. An entrepreneur speak or <laughs> Yeah. Entrepreneur speaker. We're uh, you know, we're I think we're product market fit. I don't know that you ever know that you are until in hindsight, but yeah. um, we have customers, that's always a good sign. We have some great customers. We yeah. we have about ten percent of the top two hundred North American firms as clients right now and the and it's been on the ground just for a little over two years. 
Um, so we have some great, uh, great customers um, and continuing to add as fast as we can. Yeah, it's exciting to be a part of. You know, when I was, you know, talking to you, there were probably about six, seven people on the team. I was the eighth. And then now there's, seems like, feels like there's about 15, 14 people yeah. in the office now. And, you know, I was, I was part of Fuji and Fuji went from three of us to 15 and then 60 in two years. And that was crazy. So it's, it's fun to kind of take a step back and go back down to another small, small company and, and be a part of that growth. And it's, it's exciting. Um, so where, where do you think Avail's heading? What's it, what excites you most about Avail and where, where the space is heading, where Avail specifically is heading? Uh, I mean, I, I try to, we're very focused in this industry, so I love, I'm a problem solver. So I just love kind of seeing the next, set, you know, six months to year worth of work that I kind of know that we're doing and laying the groundwork for and the things that we're going to be doing on that front. And then, you know, and then beyond that, right, as I said earlier, the scale of this problem, this isn't just this industry's problem. So whether or not we are able to or decide, you know, to expand beyond the vertical market that we're in, and apply the technology, right? Is a huge opportunities. I've, I've felt like, you know, the last really, I mean, I've been working on this for about five years now. And um, it's, uh, it's definitely one that I think I could probably spend the rest of my career yeah. working on the problem. It's yeah. a big enough problem that it's going to take, you know, this is definitely another decade worth of work uh, easily to continue working on it. So that's, that's exciting to think that you're working on a big enough problem that's not. Yeah. Absolutely, it's got legs. Yeah, and again, that's what I—that's what I saw when I first talked to you. You—you you had mentioned you're very focused on arch architecture, engineering, construction, but I understood this is a much bigger idea. This is a potentially a mass market B2B product. Yeah, it's just really hard to, you know, it's not a, you know, it's not a consumer play. It's no, a business no. to business yeah. play, and if you're going to do a business to business play, you can't just generically make something and try to sell to everybody. So it's no. much better to be focused and grow out from a very, you know, focused market. Uh, and then there's plenty of room to expand. Yeah. That was one thing. That's another thing. When I, when I first uh, really sat down with you and you were kind of telling me the, the business strategy, that was one thing I noticed was you were focused on a niche. Uh, one thing that, you know, f you know, Fuji did and is probably by, we didn't even try to do this was uh, we had built this product that applied to just about any marketing team. Um, and so we went really wide, but you kind of had a different strategy where you're very niche Talk about why you do that and, and why that's important. Um, I think we're going to talk about it in a minute. I teach I teach some uh, an entrepreneurship class at the university, and one of my favorite quotes that I use with my students around uh, entrepreneurship is uh, from Sam Altman, who run you know, did run Y Combinator. I yeah. think he's off uh, doing something different now, but um, he has this great quote that says, um, uh, "You know, entrepreneurs well." Uh, you, you want to build, whenever you're doing something in early stages, you want to build something that a few people love, not a bunch of people like. So you'd rather, you know, the lesson in that is don't, don't try to do something and think that you're going to immediately sell to everybody. Do something that is focused enough that a few people get it and fall in love with it, and they will lead you to, because you want people that love it because they need to tell the next people, that, yeah. hey, yeah. <laughs> I love this thing you should look at it too. And that's how you get your next customer. So I think that's a great lesson for entrepreneurs is, you know, you have to keep yourself in check that, you know, I, you know, you carry a bunch of thoughts in your head. So you have to always be thinking about where could you go with this? Mm -hmm. What are your options? Yep. Uh, but at the same time, how do I today be very focused in what we're doing and execute on that to the best, you know, to the best that you can. So, but I think that's, that's a great early lesson is you better, you better focus. I, I had a failed startup that I did kind of uh, prior to this one that I, you know, I probably knew better, but I always say it's like, you know, not telling entrepreneurs things sometimes is like, uh, especially that fall in love with their own idea is like telling a kid not to touch the hot stove, right? They have <laughs> to do it themselves once or twice. And right. even though you know better, but I, you know, it was a technology in search of a market. So any, I learned my lesson. It's like, you better understand what the problem is and who the customer is and you better solve that first problem. And then if it's a, like a, we're describing, if this is a big enough problem, there's going to be plenty of opportunities to expand. I'm not yeah. worried about that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, makes sense. And architecture is probably just a great place to start for this product because and it is 
probably the best place because as you know i found all these different ways to pitch it it's like every doorknob is a file for an architect uh, and so when you think about when they're designing these projects there's hundreds of thousands of files millions just millions <laughs> for one project uh, and so they have the biggest content problem probably big, in, in the world right now. Um, so if you solve it for them, you probably have solved it for the rest of the in the world. I mean, yep. probably. Uh, so awesome, awesome place to start there. So that's that's avail. Um, let's before we get into kind of these more specific entrepreneurship focused questions, talk about base one ten. We're sitting in it right now. Uh, when did you start it? How? Why? Talk about that. So I got into the real estate business about 10 years ago just by uh, being a partner in a, uh, and where uh, Avail and ArcVision's you know, headquarters offices are. So uh, 2008, bought into a piece of property and uh, actually was running uh, two companies out of the space at the time as prior to Avail um, and then ended up with uh, really about half the space, uh, one of the companies that I was involved with ended up moving out to Colorado. And so we ended up with about half the space available. It's about 4,000 square feet of space or something. And um, so in 2010, I ended up deciding to lease the individual offices. I kind of say now it's like, I want to rent these to my friend, the, the people that I want to be around every day. So you, uh, so I, rebranded the thing we call it base 163 it's 163 east main's the address and uh i had about a dozen offices that i began renting out to other tech you know related there's a gaming company that's been a very successful gaming company that that was there for several years um so uh you know i could kick myself because it was, i was basically doing we work at about the same time we work was doing we work <laughs> right so uh you know i just kind of fell into it yeah. but very same idea and thought and strategy you know thoughts about it and um it's kind of funny because we work's a customer of avail now but the uh so anyway i i had about five years i had about a dozen offices and about five years of having those tenants, uh, I think I only had two office months of vacancy. So basically, that's, that's awesome. five, you know, 12 times 12, 144. So I had 142 paid rent months out of 144 yeah. possible months. That's amazing. So I, so I was like, wow, there needs to be more, you know, so I started about five years ago thinking like every entrepreneur does, I always wanted to expand and um, I wanted to grow that. So I started looking for some other property around town to expand the concept. I knew that there was other people that, right, that uh, would would gravitate to the same thing. So I ended up uh, uh, teaming up with a guy named Tim Guthrie, who's my partner in this 110 project. And we opened up, we're actually getting ready to celebrate two years here. Um, we started with one floor of the building that we're doing this podcast in. It's about a 7,500 square foot floor plate. And um, we filled that up within eight months and we took another floor and another third of a floor and we're getting ready to take another floor. So I think we've got 18,000 <laughs> square feet here now and getting yeah. ready to be 25,000 square feet. And there's about 50 plus individual offices here that we lease out to other, uh, the tagline that we use is designers, entrepreneurs, and mavens. And I jokingly say, if you don't know what maven means, you're not one. So you probably, <laughs> but it's a, also just a catch all for, it's one of those things where we try to curate who's who's on you know here because uh, the way i describe it is when you go get coffee is the other person that's there getting coffee somebody that professionally you could learn from or you can you know that you want to be around each other from a professional standpoint so that means we try to curate kind of the audience around yeah. around that yeah. so it's not just necessarily startups i always say you know there's plenty of small businesses that are ongoing concerns that just need uh, they want to be around uh, so the real estate side of the business is if you need less than 2,000 square feet, good luck, right? Traditional uh, brokers are not going to be interested in, in in servicing you. So it's kind of potluck to go find office space. So we bring together a lot of like-minded people under one roof. Yeah. Uh, you had just mentioned WeWork as a client of Avail. Through working with WeWork, what have you learned, uh, learned from them that you might have applied to Base 110? Anything? 
No, I'm just je- <laughs> I'm just jealous that they've <laughs> that they've skyrocketed and really applied what they did uh, to 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 the business model. You know, what they figured out was that there are a bunch of people that don't need a bunch of space and don't want to sign a long term lease, right? So it's op- optionality. Yeah, um, so they you know yeah. they they started in New York, so it, it was able to grow very quickly, right? And um, but um, no, not so. I mean, I'm just kind of in awe. I've been up now to the headquarters in New York a couple of times uh, because they're clients of ours, and uh, it's just amazing to see what's going on. And you had mentioned some figures around their growth, how quickly they acquired space. What was that? Mil- I mean, it's like it's crazy. Yeah. More than more than a million square feet a month is dropping, or something That's like unbelievable. that. Unbelievable. Yeah, they. Uh, we did an episode on them two or three episodes ago. We did a pretty deep dive into them. It's just an amazing, they're building a platform through real estate and then they're starting to stack on software. That's cool stuff. It is, it's really exciting. Uh, where do you want Base 110 to, to go? What's what's the next uh, Well, we've, we're always, you know. We're not Base 110, is it Base, I guess? It's, it's just Base is yeah. the kind of core yeah. and we use the street address as the whatever numbers after it, but uh, which is, is it works it's kind of cool it It rolls off the tongue but it doesn't scale very well because if you have a bunch of properties like everyone's unique and i don't own base.com and it's like uh so trying to figure that out uh we've you know we've we're we're thinking about whether there's an opportunity to in the region to scale what we're doing outside of lexington so we're there's work going on on that front yeah and by work i mean me and Tim, my partner in this, yapping about it. And <laughs> at some point, you either do it or you don't, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's exciting stuff. Uh, let's jump into some entrepreneurship-specific questions. You know, you've been an entrepreneur all all your professional career, pretty much. Never had a job. Worked, yeah. worked plenty, but never had a job. That's amazing. Uh, so what? Um, who are some entrepreneurs that, that you look up to the most that you kind of – uh, you take take bits and pieces of their their career from. Well, I'm in you know I'm I'm in the tech industry, so I follow a lot of tech entrepreneurs, right? For the most part, and then I've been teaching entrepreneurship in one form or another for the last ten years. Yeah, and um, or just heavily involved in that. Actually, teaching a class at the university for the last five years. Um, you know, it's the Mark Andreessen and the. And Dreesen Horowitz and, uh, you know, Sam Altman, all Peter the stuff Thiel. that went on at, at Y Combinator, Peter Thiel, um, Vinod Khosla, um, you know, Elon Musk. So I kind of devour, you know, the, the really who got me interested in it from a academic cerebral point of view was Steve Blank. So Steve Blank's kind of the godfather now of the new thinking of what you should, how you should act when you're starting something. And, uh, I was running a venture-backed company in the you know 2006, seven, eight time frame, and that was right when Steve Blank was kind of coming on the scene. And I was reading, I can remember reading his blog, and I'm like, oh my god, was he just like in? It was like he was on the wall, you know, sitting in the last board meeting I was in, and describing to a T exactly what you shouldn't do, how you shouldn't act. And uh, so I began devouring a lot of his, you know, teachings and. Um, and then in 2012, I actually got the chance to go out uh, with some people here from the local university to Steve's. Uh, he was teaching a class out at Stanford. The uh, National Science Foundation was sending a bunch of teams out. So I was uh, an advisor on one of those teams here from the local university. And so we, we did a 10-week uh, Steve Blank. And that you know just kept getting me very interested in it just from uh, thinking about what the process should be. And it's been – so then the last five years, I've actually been teaching a class and trying to get these – kind of ideas and principles and it's just been a great exercise it's like it's it's been good like even while we're you know trying to grow a veil because it's kind of you, you kind of know the academic about what you should do or what the theory is and then you actually yeah. get to practice it yourself and try to so, try to square the two how so. do you teach entrepreneurship you know a lot of people say it's not something that could be teach you have to experience it how do you how do you walk that line yeah i agree you know and i don't know that i know that answer yet i would tend to say that you can't I don't think you can teach somebody to be an entrepreneur. I think entrepreneurs are probably, well, I would say they've got a screw loose, so they're probably just born that way. (laughs) Like you don't, it's not a normal thing to do, right? Um, I do think you can teach, you can put the framework together. So as I've taught this course, it's more about, I'm going to, I'm going to provide you a way of thinking about 
you know, I've, I started the last two or three years saying this is more of a philosophy class than it is an entrepreneurship class because I'm just going to describe a way to think about w how the world works, yeah. uh, how businesses work, what you should be doing to make the world a better place and how you go about solving those problems. And ultimately, if you're going to do that at scale, you're going to build business, right, to deliver that at scale. So uh, just walking through how to think about those things critically, you know, as you're taking a problem and trying to figure out. So I think you can teach people a framework to think about the problems. Most people are not going to be an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. Most people yap about it, right? Yeah. I always, anytime I'm thinking of something, it's like I assume that there's a hundred other people. I mean, you're pretty arrogant to think that you're the only person on the planet thinking of something. It's like there's a lot of other people. It's usually a confluence of uh, different things that are coming together. New technologies are enabling something new, and everybody starts thinking about it in some new way. Entrepreneurs act on it, right? A lot of people sit around drinking beers and talk yeah. about it. Yeah. And then they're the ones that in hindsight are like, oh, I had that idea a long time ago. You hear that all the time, right? So yeah. the it's the crazy people that actually take the leap. and Because yeah. it's, you know, it is, it's kind of when you think about it, it's not a sane thing to do. No. <laughs> yeah. When I was at UK, it, it, uh, once I kind of got that, that itch for entrepreneurship and the startup space specifically, once, you know, we went through what we experienced the finance year, freshman year and helped grow that and. I realized college probably wasn't the best place for me to learn entrepreneurship or the startup space. Um, so I really did my best to get out of that ecosystem of very structured thinking. And so it makes sense why it can't be taught now that I've been in the space and been a part of two you know, amazing startups and watched firsthand how these things are built from the ground up. It's, it's, uh, it's not something that, that can be taught, but yeah. I titled my uh, my first lecture that I give to the class is called Get Uncomfortable. It's all yeah. about learning to be very uncomfortable, right? So that's why yeah. it's not it's not a comfortable thing to do. That's why most people, you know, don't don't have any reason to want to do it and Yeah, because they're afraid of failure. And uh, you know, speaking of failure, what's probably it's always important to talk about, you know, the good parts of entrepreneurship, what you've learned and but it's also important for the sake of the listeners and people that want to become entrepreneurs to talk about the failures. Uh, what are some of the, what is probably the biggest failure of your career or some, or some of the biggest failures of your career? Well, I'd said earlier, I had a failed, you know, startup that I started. I sunk, you know, way too much of my own money in it. Right. And, uh, uh, wasn't able to figure it out. And, uh, so from a business standpoint, that was probably the biggest one. Um, you know, you're, you're probably, I'm failing, you're failing all the time. I just don't, I don't worry about it. It's like, I don't even We were talking about that before we left the office today. So let's, <laughs> let's, re, let's just kind of rewind a couple hours and do that same phrase. Yeah, I was, well, I was, uh, one of my, another quote that I like is Vinod Kosla. He, he had this, uh, quote about, or it was an interview maybe he was giving and talking about that basically, you know, history does not care about your failures. History only cares about, you know, the wins. So the successes, nobody really knows nor cares about the failures. And it actually got me thinking about that, you know, failure is really a very personal thing. I mean, I think Coastal's right. It's like, nobody cares if you failed. It's a, it, you're probably the only one and maybe a close circle of people that might be affected or care. Other than that, who cares, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just a little blip on the planet. <laughs> but but if you're successful at something and you're doing something that can actually be scaled and affects a lot of people, then everybody knows you, right? Yeah. So it's a, and you know, history only cares about the wins, not the losses, right? Yeah. Unless it's like some catastrophic loss that somebody wants to wants to point at. But uh, for the most part, failures, you know, they're just part of whatever scale. Part you, of learning. You know, part of part of the whole though. Uh, Steve Blank and this whole, you know, lean, right, probably way overused terminology of, of thinking about these things in the, in the early stages. I'm a, uh, uh, a fan of this, you know, thinking that you don't want to, you don't want to put yourself out too far of a limb and fail. So at some point you're taking much more measured uh, kind of steps along this journey so that even if you are failing, you're just failing little bits at a time, not like, you know, if you were going to sum up what Steve Blank has taught the world is don't write a 50 page business plan 
and then go raise a bunch of money and then go spend five years writing code only to find out that nobody cares at the end of the five years and all this investment. Instead, take little tiny steps at a time, measure as you go. So even though you may fail, you're just failing little bits at a time and you're adjusting yeah. right, along the way. So it's a very healthy uh, way to think about it. I think. Yeah, yeah. And again, I always go back to when I first you know, met you and started talking to you. That was one of the things I noticed about you was, you know, how uh, methodical you were and how kind of easy kill you were and how you were taking your time with Avail, uh, coming from a company that scaled so quickly. And again, uh, I don't know if we had so much control over that, but coming from a company that scaled so quickly, I was able to appreciate how you kind of methodically just moved uh, Avail along and take very, very calculated steps. And I used to be uh, in a bigger hurry as I get older. Yeah, I'm like, I, I've seen it. Right? Yeah. It's like, okay, just just keep keep your eye on the prize and keep moving, and yeah, it'll take care of itself. Yeah, I noticed that. Okay, uh, so let's. We always try to end and have a good, good forward-looking statement on Lexington and end this in kind of a, a good light on where the space is heading. But before you know, we talk about that, what do you think are some things Lexington can do better and improve on uh, to make this an ecosystem that continues to grow? Oh, I think, you know, my observation of Lexington, Central Kentucky, probably Kentucky, maybe, you know, even beyond the region, it's very... Uh, it may just be in this in this area. It's very risk of it's risk averse. I would say very conservative. Yeah. So um, there's not just a ton of, uh, especially most of the money in in Central Kentucky was made in the old vices, alcohol, tobacco, and <laughs> horse racing. Right. Yeah. So it's like all the, you know, we love all those things today. Right. Yeah. It makes for a great environment for uh, entertainment. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know. People make great fortunes in this region uh, doing those things, but those were, you know, you know, fifty and hundred year old, you know, businesses. So the there's not a ton of you know innovation that's happened. Uh, it's it's a real service oriented community, so it's a lot of you know lawyers and bankers and people in the services businesses. It's not been traditionally a product driven business and those types of things. Um, so I think all that means that you just haven't had that, you know, culture of creating something that's scalable that yeah. you can sell to a lot of people. Um, and, um, so I think that's probably the, been the, that's probably the biggest challenge that I see is that there's just not been that, you know, that atmosphere. Are you starting to feel that, that change? Yeah, I think it's changed. I think it changes generationally, right? As, as, as people, as the older people get older and are out and the new ones are coming in, it's like, okay, you've get that whole new, yeah. um, uh, you know, group of people coming through. I think the, you know, the university of Kentucky, that's the flagship state flagship school that's here. You know, uh, you can't underestimate how much impact that that has here. It's a, you know, it's a it's a huge school research university. And, um, it brings a lot of very talented people come here to central Kentucky because of the university. And so it creates a, you know, a great, uh, well-educated group of people that are here. There's some, yeah. there's a crazy stat that we have, like Lexington has, it's either the, it's in the like top five, I think of, of citizens with a college degree. I think it's couples with a, with a bachelor's degree or better. Yeah. So it's very highly educated population, and the it's trick is getting to them to yeah. stay here after they graduate too. That's another. Well, that's the challenge, right? Yeah. You got to have a you know people that are smart or want to pursue their business and uh, interest, and uh, you've got to have enough of uh, opportunities for people to do that. So you're either starting your own thing, or you're trying to find right an existing business here that yeah. floats your boat and keeps you interested. So that 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 becomes the challenge, right? Yeah. So, end with the, cl the classic forward-looking statement on Lexington. Where do you want Lexington and, and Avail and everything you're working on? Where do you see this city and um, you know your projects heading in the future? And um, what's your outlook on on this this space here? Well, Lex, you know I'm a downtowner, so we're sitting right in the 100 block of of, uh, of downtown. My other office is in the 100 block on the other side of 
<laughs> this is on the west side. The other one's on the east side. Yeah. And I actually live downtown with my wife. Yeah. So it's amazing. I, I put a, too. I have two. We have way too many vehicles. We we have three vehicles between us. I have two, of which I put about four thousand miles total on two cars a year. So I'm walking <laughs> almost everywhere yeah. I go. I walk to the university. So I'm a downtowner, and downtown's just hot right now. Lots of construction, is, yeah. lots of restaurants, lots of entertainment. It's just a great great environment to be in. Uh, so I'm really enjoying that, uh, and I see that continuing to. Uh, to prosper. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and then uh, as far as Lexington goes, you know, its challenge is going to be, you know, it's a, I like to think it's a great little secret right now. It's a, it's a great place to live because of its scale. It, you know, it's it, the size is we're not big enough to have big city problems and we're big enough though, to have kind of everything you would need to have a great, uh, you know, lifestyle and, and entertainment and all the things that you would want or need. Um, so I think, its challenge is going to be, you know, as it, you know, doubles in size over the coming decades, does it, can it keep its mojo, right? Yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then as far as Avail, you know, my guess is it's going to be a big company. Oh, yeah. We just be. got to keep moving. It will be. <laughs> All right. Well, it's getting hot in this room. It's, uh, we turned off the air conditioning. I'm starting <laughs> to sweat. So uh, we'll end it here, but... But Randall, thank you so much for joining. Uh, Thanks for having me. You were a big reason I uh, I wanted to join Avail. You uh, you definitely somebody I look up to and learn from every day. So we're blessed to have you on the podcast and share that knowledge with everybody else. So I appreciate it.